it's easy to think from the outside, breast imaging is just another subsidiary of a, of a radiology department. And it is so different. Fundamentally, as a breast imager, you are the primary care of the breast health. And so it's a different level of responsibility. And with that comes just a unique opportunity. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Radiology Report podcast, where we are having conversations with the leaders transforming radiology today. You can find us on radiologyreportpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm your host, Daniel Arnold. I am so excited to be joined by our guest today, Dr. Chirag Pargi. Dr. Pargi is the Chief Medical Officer of Solus Mammography. He's a fellowship-trained breast imager and board-certified radiologist. He also holds an MBA from the University of Houston and has a background in engineering. Chirag, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And I, I love that you're doing this podcast. So I'm, I'm excited to be here and, and excited about this project overall. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. So to start, you have, um, you have a great background. I'd love to hear a, a little bit about it and, and maybe start with how did you get into radiology? Yeah. Uh, so in undergraduate, I was a math and science guy. I really liked engineering. I thought I was going to be an engineer. And my parents and my sister is a, is a physician. My parents were engineers, but they, they pushed me heavily into, into considering medicine. It just was something they were, they were really excited about. So I, when I got into medical school, I was always gravitated towards the kind of more technical aspects and where there was more technology and medical imaging was just a natural extension of that. So I, um, I was interested in, in radiology. I was actually interested in ophthalmology first, and I applied to be an ophthalmologist when I was a fourth year medical student and I didn't get it. And then I wiped the dust off and I decided, Hey, let's try, let's try to be, make sure this is what you want to do. And I learned during intern year, Hey, medical imaging is, is pretty interesting. It's fascinating. You make diagnoses. It's, it's very smart. So I applied with uh, almost no application and just some people that were very nice to me and I, I got a spot. And so I've, I've just, I've really enjoyed the, the intellectual challenge of radiology. Yeah. People that are intellectually curious, like you are, end up finding radiology to be an endlessly interesting field. And we'll get into that as we talk a little bit more about your, your interest and what drives and motivates you. So it's an interesting winding road to radiology. And then, and then what? So you graduated, you decided to do a fellowship. Why did you choose breast imaging? And what was it like finding a job? It was, it was like it is today, right? You just, you just got 10 job offers and signing bonuses. No, it was nothing like the job market today. I'm so jealous of, of new trainees coming out and I'm happy for them. Uh, so when I was in, so the first question, what, what made me choose uh, breast imaging? When I was in training, uh, a lot of, and this is a typecast, so just take it with a grain of salt. A lot of the male residents kind of picked neuro in our program, neuro or body imaging, kind of more the traditional, the more common fellowships. And I, I was, I kind of liked everything. I really enjoyed reading general. And on my first breast imaging rotation, uh, Dr. Brem, who I think has been on this podcast, kind of just introduced me and she just has a lot of contagious energy and passion for her field. I remember watching a stereotactic biopsy with her and I was so skeptical the whole time. I'm like, there's no way you're going to get those tiny calcifications and sample them. Okay, that's great. You're going through these motions. There's no, and then when I saw the spots of calcium in the sample, I'm like, oh, geez, wait a minute, wait a minute. There's, there's methodology here. <laughs> they know what they're doing. And so I got, I just got interested in it. I thought it's, it's very simple logic in some ways, but you can make big mistakes and it's, 
there's a, a lot of validation. You see something, you follow it up, you can biopsy it, you know it's cancer, you can see that patient through treatment. So there's a lot of logical validation in breast. And I find that part very interesting. I love the patients. You, you get to really have a meaningful connection with patients um, that are very vulnerable with the diagnosis of breast cancer and you have a meaningful impact. So I get a lot of patient cards. I get a lot of patient thank yous and that's, that's fun for me. And that's very, just kind of, it's rewarding and fulfilling. So I just, it hit all of those points for me and I just kind of chose it and really have just enjoyed that. Coming out of training, the market was a bloodbath. It was just a bloodbath. It was a different time. The housing crash happened and economically, the climate was different. People were just kind of recovering and radiologists weren't retiring. They weren't coming out of retirement. And so there weren't many positions to begin with. And then of those few positions for each position listed, there were hundreds of applicants. Hmm. And so I remember at one point during fellowship and I had a, had a young child at this time, I'm thinking I did all this training. I should get a job. I was driving to a job interview this is a three-hour drive from Dallas to Houston. And as I was driving there, I was about to park. I get a call saying, oh, this position's already been filled. We don't need to interview you. No courtesy interview, no anything. But that was that was a market, right? They, they didn't need to waste time. Now things have changed. I'm happy. I'm happy things have changed. But I, I experienced a different time. And you learn, it's actually good for me because you learn a different type of street hustle in a tough environment. So I'm, I'm happy for my journey. So my wife is a fellow... All of our friends are fellows or, you know, starting to take their first jobs. And it's so funny when I talk to them because they can't picture a world that's different. And you're, you didn't graduate from fellowship that long ago. These yeah. things happen quickly. I know I'm asking you to rub the crystal ball a little bit, but like, how does this thing correct? Or is it a one way, you know, it's it, definitely not correct. a one way street, you know, it'll, it'll things correct. that go up it'll, must come down. It'll absolutely correct. Economies fundamentally get smarter and they find ways to shift. And then there's just always cyclical corrections. Volumes go up, volumes go down, demand goes up and down. It's never static. And as optimistic as it looks for a new graduate right now, I give a, just a cautious warning of being measured in the optimism and in the pessimism in a down market because shifts happen drastically. Even during COVID, during one stretch of COVID, we went from being encouraged to take vacation, there wasn't jobs, and there's just no work, to all of a sudden there's a huge shortage within months, right? So swings happen, swings happen drastically, and it's important to be aware of, of economic realities that, you know, moments are temporary. Yeah. So it's great that you bring up Dr. Rachel Brem, mentor of mine, mentor of yours, that's how we got connected. I love your description of her infectious energy. And, and she can really be such a positive force to motivate people um, and encourage them. She's certainly done so for me in, in my career and just speaks to the power of mentors. It really is. I mean, she just has an optimistic style like none other. And I try to learn from her in that regard. The worst news she can flip into a positive. And that's, that's a skill. That's a true skill. And she can light up a room. She is, she's just multi-talented. I really value that because I, I draw a lot of energy from that when there's people that have paved a trail for themselves and they're so happy to go to work every day. You talk to her, she would lecture to us at you know seven in the morning and talk about how wonderful her career is. And she would do it again in a heartbeat. It's hard not to draw energy from that, right? And so yeah. I'm very fortunate to have people like that. 
that I, I've been exposed to and that I get to think from and grow from and pick their brains and bounce ideas off of. And Dr. Brem is, is on that short list and it's, it makes a world of difference, right? And she was actually, when I took this role um, as chief medical officer, she was one of the first text messages. She congratulated me, told me how proud she was of me. So it, it continues and it, it means a lot as that relationship kind of grows. So what's different about breast imaging and to put a little more context on the question, Gemara Online, the platform, we, we do educational courses. We care a lot about clinical education, but then we also think a little bit, the, the goal for this podcast was to fill a hole that we saw around conversations around the business of radiology and then how to really enact change at scale. So if you think about, you might be reading about breast AI, you might be reading about you know a few years ago, Tomo or whatever it might've been, you're trying to learn new skills, but then the gap between learning those new skills and then bringing them into your business practice um, is a whole other set of conversations that need to happen. And there's other stakeholders, not just the radiologists, but the, the business leader, the referring physician community patients and so on. And so talk a little bit about breast imaging, the differences you talked about some of them clinically, but then also you know technology-wise and business-wise, what makes breast imaging exciting and different? Absolutely. And that's a great question. It's easy to think from the outside Oh, breast imaging. And this is what I thought about it for the longest time. Breast imaging is just another subsidiary of a, of a radiology department. There's neuroradiology, there's body imaging, MSK, and then there's breast imaging, right? And it is so different. You are fundamentally, as a breast imager, you are the primary care of the breast health. In with the way screening mammograms work, it is almost incumbent on you to make sure that you are taking care of that patient in terms of all of their needs from a breast cancer standpoint, up to the point of diagnosis. And so it's a different level of responsibility. And with that comes just a unique opportunity. And the challenge we have is it's integrated into a traditional radiology curriculum, but it's so different. Because of the clinical nature of it, you can also serve as a massive referral pipeline for new oncology patients not to kind of turn it into a business kind of filter, but there is an opportunity there for a healthcare system if they're trying to grow an oncology service line. And what, what I've learned so far is, you know, if mother or grandmother gets their breast cancer diagnosed and they have a good experience, they drive the family decisions for healthcare. So there's a lot of secondary halo effects, a lot of secondary halo opportunities that all of which stem from a good experience on diagnosing breast cancer. And so I've seen that firsthand and I've seen that within healthcare systems. This being this gateway portal for a broader set of patients and a broader set of diseases is something that I never really understood when I was a radiology resident. And it's hard to see in the busy nature of community radiology, but there's a massive opportunity to be a liaison between you know, primary breast health and oncology. So you might not know the answer to this, but I'm, I'm just curious. Like, how did it come to be that breast imaging was so different? Like that radiologists had this direct patient connection and that it all kind of folded together this way? Good question. We offer a screening service, right? And mammography is, has only been out since like the, it started really taking off mid to late 80s and then 90s. It's, it's a pretty new field. And it was initially just kind of incorporated into many community practices and just kind of Traditional hospital systems, it's just something you read out, right? And that was just how it started off as a subsidiary of radiology. But as it evolved, as technology involved, we went from 2D to 3D imaging, and we're catching smaller and smaller cancers at scale. 
there's experiential knowledge that happens at scale. And you learn, hey, these are a unique set of patients. They're not like Mr. So-and-so or Mrs. So-and-so that came in for diagnosis of gallstones. It's completely different. There are different needs here. And this is a breast cancer diagnosis. There's a lot of gravity to that. There's also a lot of opportunity when we catch it early. This is a whole different need of patients. And it takes time. You know, mammography has been around for 20, 30 years. That evolution of understanding has happened nationwide in the last five, 10 years and at a very rapid pace where we're learning, hey, this is a different need entirely. This isn't like you're coming in here with a, a broken bone. Not that that's not important, but this is it's different. And we're learning that if you focus on that difference, there's a lot of upside where you understand how can I do this in the most meaningful manner? And there's a lot of economic upside. There's just a lot of spiritual upside in treating the patient properly. There's a lot of wins to be had. And we're seeing as you know, navigation services take over nationwide and how oncology mixes so perfectly with breast imaging that that marriage is leading to a unique level of patient care at a very high level where a patient can come in and they can get their, you know, diagnosis, treatment, and all their follow-up done in a timely manner and with a smile on their face because we catch an early cancer. So what are the technologies, you know, we spend a lot of time in radiology talking about AI and we can get into that, but you've brought up oncology now a few times. What are the therapeutic and interventions that are coming? What's the pace of innovation look like in breast cancer right now? It's happening at light speed and it's, it's very encouraging in that regard. I mean, you have to, if you step back and think of the numbers, one in eight lifetime risk of getting breast cancer, that's a lot of patients. So there's a, a lot of curiosity that's being thrown into the breast cancer realm. From the diagnosis side, I can speak very intelligently about what's, what's coming there. In terms of the treatment, there's, there's a lot of emphasis on immunotherapy for various stages before. If, if you look at the survival curves for early stage breast cancer, it kind of drops off precipitously once we get to kind of stage three, stage four. Now there's a lot of exciting, promising technologies like immunotherapy for those stage three, stage four that are showing it's, it may not be the death sentence that it was before. We're learning not every breast cancer is the same. And we, we had traditional staining methodologies to say, oh, this is this type of breast cancer. But as we learn the molecular genetics, we're learning a whole different layer, which allows for very signature treatments that can be much more effective. So I think kind of big picture, we're taking our broad paintbrush with how we, how we define breast cancer and we're getting more and more granular, which allows us to find more granular and targeted therapies. From a diagnosis standpoint, it's the same. We're, we're integrating AI faster than is sometimes comfortable, but we can find breast cancer and future breast cancer with greater accuracy and with greater ease than ever before. So after fellowship, you worked in the community as leader in various breast imaging practices, but you've since left full-time clinical practice yes. to join Solus Mammography. What drew you away from uh, full-time clinical practice? Yeah, I, it wasn't a conscious decision. I wasn't actively saying I'm going, I, I love breast imaging. I get so much excitement and validation and just purpose out of day-to-day -day breast imaging and just out of the work that, that I was doing. I found myself in this position where I, in my first few years of practice, I just got restless and I had some vacation time. I had a busy family plate, but I was just restless. And so I decided to get my MBA which was a good decision. I learned the fundamentals of business, 
And I didn't know what I was going to do with that. There wasn't this Machiavellian, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z once I get this. This is my strategy. I just kind of got it. It was fun. And then I, my practice was growing. I went from a one-person practice to, to a team of five. And our hospital system, the HCA hospital system in Houston, had partnered with Solus. And it would just, it had gone really well. Our, you know, it was a nice partnership. Everything was going well. We had a lot of patients. We were diagnosing a lot of breast cancer. We were doing really good work. I was just kind of having this existential crisis that I think a lot of us have where I was like, what's, is this it? Am I going to come into these jobs and read in this capacity every day? And I just, I was like, I need to try something else. I'm restless. I really loved my position a lot. I love the people I work with. The texts are still, I text all the time. I'm very close with them. But I was just kind of yearning for something else, for change, for change's sake. And as I was doing that, I was just, I, I was, had really warm relationships with Solus in my hospital. The chief medical officer of Solus had moved to a different company to, to work in an AI project. And so there was just this opening and serendipity. Normally I'm on the downside of timing and fortune. And it just worked out that there was this opportunity. And so we did this interim trial and it was so fascinating for me to see breast imaging, what I'd been doing at a very detailed level for so long, to see that at scale and the dimensions that come out at scale were just mind-bending for me. So I kind of found this ultimate challenge that I'm still trying to wrestle with and better understand, but it's just, it's so enigmatic and complicated that I was just drawn to it. I just love it. And so they, they offered me permanent chief medical officer and I just, I, I grabbed it and I've just been running with it. And it's been the ultimate challenge to pivot from what I know to be successful in a breast clinic to how can I do this at scale? And that's always this thing I wrestle with, but I'm, I'm permanently fascinated by it. So what is Solus Memo? We've talked about it now. We've said yeah. the words a few times, but what's the elevator pitch? Yeah, well, uh, I don't have a practiced elevator pitch, but we are um, we're the largest independent provider of breast mammography services. We have over a hundred centers. And we focus pretty much on women's health. And we are focused more than anything on destigmatizing mammography. The mammogram can be a painful experience. It can be associated as a painful experience. It can be thought of as taking up a lot of time and creating a lot of short-term anxiety. And as a company, we really want to chip away at those barriers and make it as easy as possible and reframe the experience, the patient experience around mammography. And so I, I think we've done a good job. There's a lot more to do, but we've done a good job at making it easy for women to access this technology and get a high quality experience, both destigmatizing the anxiety and also getting a really high quality interpretation. And what's the business model? We, we have a complicated business model. We we look for quality partners. We look for quality hospital partners to work with where we can grow the hospital breast centers. We also work uh, with independent providers and have, have many outpatient centers. And we really focus on how can we get the message to the women in those markets where we have partnerships. And after establishing that vehicle, we make it easy for patients to come in through our centers and we, we kind of solicize centers where we make it easy for patients to come in and out. We make it easy for them to schedule. We make it comfortable when they're in our centers so that it's not seen as something that's difficult. So when you talk about 
driving marketing and awareness is the North star then for you, just how to get more women getting their annual mammogram? That's the fundamental question. And I used to think when I was a practicing radiologist, oh, that's easy. You just, you know, you send up a pamphlet. No, I'm, I'm learning now the marketing component of that is so thorny and so complicated. And how do you most effectively target that demographic? Who is that demographic and how do you target them? And that's something that we're, we're pretty obsessed with as a company. It's what, I'm, what I've learned in this role. And that's a big question, um, what you asked. And yeah, yes, that is our focus. How do you encourage women that haven't got their mammogram to get their mammogram? And how do you make it easy for them? So how, put this in, in perspective, what percent of women are getting their mammogram versus the percent that, that ought to be? For approximations, nationwide, 50%. So oh there's a big opportunity here. And there's a, lot of, there's a lot of guidelines that keep changing. There's a lot of forces that are kind of pushing away. At a, anytime you have a successful screening program, like breast imaging, there's going to be blowback, right? Oh, you're overdoing it. You're catching too much. And I, I don't want to go down that rabbit hole because that would take me for hours. But we have a lot of hurdles, right? And then there's, it can be associated as, as being uncomfortable or pain and the anxiety related to pain can kind of let, encourage women to delay. So we have a lot of negative forces that we're, we're constantly chipping away at, but it's at 50% nationwide, which is, it's, it's how you see it. Is a glass half full or half empty? Compared to where we were decades ago, it's, it's amazing. If you look at the survival rates of breast cancer, we are making significant progress. The mortality of breast cancer has dropped 30% since the 1980s. It was a death sentence then. It isn't now. If breast cancer is caught early, we use the word cure. There's a 95% treatment rate where it's, you get it removed and you're done with it. So mm -hmm. we're, we're encouraged by that, but there's still a lot of work to be done in terms of getting women in the door. And a year into the role, have you found any techniques that work? You know, is it, oh, well, in, in our solace mammo markets, we're at 60% because, you know, we're doing such a good job of building trust and awareness and quality in our centers. Luckily, that task falls on much smarter people than myself. <laughs> and so I don't have, I get to focus on the clinical quality. Uh, we have an excellent marketing team and a business development team that's robust. Our, our whole operations, everyone, everyone is just robust. But I get to think about the clinical side. And I just get to watch them work. But yes, there is a lot of curiosity that goes into understanding the nuance of who gets their mammogram and who doesn't and why. And how do we, how do we shape and inform their decision-making? There is so much targeted effort and thought that goes into that question in our company. And we're learning it's not cookie cutter. It's not one size fits all. And it, with the advent of social media, the advent and curse of social media is there's a lot of opportunity, but there's a lot of cost. And so you have to figure out how to use that vehicle that's ever so powerful in the most effective way. So you're not chief marketing officer, you're chief medical officer. So I know you're focused on quality and clinical demands. Yeah. So uh, at the same time, you don't employ radiologists. Nope. Um, so how do you affect change? What are, what are some examples of initiatives that you're you're working on? Yeah, that's a great question. So as we said earlier, mammography is kind of an evolving field. Traditionally, the benchmarks for how to read and how to interpret a mammogram were, they were defined by the FDA. We have kind of recall rates that we try to stay around. We have cancer detection rates that we try to stay around, but they were designed for, you know, general radiologists interpreting breast imaging, which and they, they do a fantastic job. 
as the field evolves, we're getting more and more fellowship trained breast imagers like myself that did a one year subspecialized training in breast imaging, or they've dedicated the bulk of their time to breast imaging and they're very on top of their field. They're, you know, we talked about deliberate practice before this podcast, they're very focused on how to read a mammogram at a high level. Well, what does quality look like for them? That's a question I constantly struggle with, right? And so we work closely with several of our big radiology partners and, and I work with them. It's not, I don't employ them. I'm the only employed radiologist of Solus and we wanna keep it that way, right? But what I've learned is to have really frank, but data-centered conversations. Luckily, I get to work with very ambitious and smart radiologists that want to do a better job. And when we're aligned in that capacity, we can look at the data and say, hey, how can we do this better? And what we're learning is in our company, which is exciting, and I don't want to sound too proud, but the standard metrics of, hey, this is what it means to be a good, an adequate breast imager by criteria, that doesn't apply to us. We're mostly fellowship trained breast imagers and subspecialized breast imagers. We got to do better than that. So I don't, I almost toss those and I say, okay, that's cute, but we're going to do better than that because our patients, we have a separate pool. Let's not get complacent and say, oh, we beat the standard metrics. How can we do better? So we've kind of gone deeper and I can, I can talk about this at a granular level. We're comparing ourselves to ourselves mm-hmm. and the breast imagers that we work with love it because they get new insight. You know, imagine if you're always just given a, a trove, oh, you do, you're, you're meeting standards, you're meeting standards. Well, this is where you are in the spectrum. It, it's good and bad, right? And so here's information. And so um, it, it's exciting to kind of delve into this layer and you get to peel the onion layer, the onion back a few layers and go deeper and deeper. And the, the overall question is how can we do this better? So you're comparing yourselves to yourselves. I like that. And as you gain scale, you can do that quite effectively Mm -hmm. mentioned. I think you said at one of your practices, you were the only radiologist and then there were five. Um, But you know, when you, when you're working across hundreds of clinics, uh, the scale starts to really glean interesting data and insights. So, okay. you, You run a benchmarking study. So I guess first question is what is the thing that you're benchmarking on? Is it recall rates? Is it detection rates? Is it something else? And then okay, I've got this. And, and then what do I do? I take, is it the Jack Welsh? I take the 10% of people and, that are at the tail and I, they either improve or they're out. Like, I don't mean to be harsh, but I'm trying to get to the next level of what, what you actually do with the data. And that is a, that's a fantastic question. That goes at the heart of kind of what, what I'm learning about every day is change management. How do you modify reading practices when you need to? And it's not the rest. We're not firing anyone. <laughs> don't hear me the wrong way. We don't get draconian. It's not that. It's very much educational and motivational. And it's what I'm learning is breast imagers want to do a better job. So it's kind of easy in that regard. If they see the data and they see the opportunity, it happens pretty naturally, right? Most of us, all of us want to do a better job. We just need to know where there's opportunity. And uh, one of our partners, Rose Imaging, Dr. Rose has been way ahead of this. He has a very progressive peer review uh, model that's actually been published where they review cases and they, they're very honest. You know, a lot of times they say, hey, I disagreed with this, which is, you know, it's very awkward when there's a collegial disagreement in a lot of formalized traditional structures, law, medicine, anything. I've read about this. Disagreement is not something we encourage, right? And it's to our detriment in those vacuums. His group says, hey, I wouldn't have called this back. 
I disagree with you, not in a bombastic tone to kind of create argument, but for pure education, like, hey, take this feedback and say somebody else who I respect would have done this differently. Let me put that in my head and create my new set point. So opportunities like peer review, knowing where you are kind of spectrum wise in terms of where your callback rates are, where your cancer detection rates are. There's all these metrics for, for breast imaging, PPV1, PPV3, false positive. It can be a little bit overwhelming, but understanding what each metric means and using your specific scorecard and really embracing peer review and disagreement, it's, it works. It's, it sounds simple, but it really works. There has to be curiosity fundamentally, which luckily we, our partners are great. We have no shortage of. So what sort of interventions do you offer for folks who want to take it upon themselves to get better? So shared libraries of cases, like what you have on your, on your, on your website is, is a great one. There are great resources, external resources. The ACR bootcamp is excellent. SBI has some excellent, excellent resources. So there, there, there's always educational refreshers. A lot of times there's a lot of conditioning that needs to happen and it's a slow process. It doesn't happen overnight. You traditionally have individuals that'll fall on one of two ends of a spectrum, right? And you either have undercallers for all practical purposes and overcallers, right? You have people that'll call back too much and you'll have people that are not call back enough for various biases. Realistically, most breast imagers, it doesn't matter, irrespective if they call back too much or they call back too little, they're catching a lot of cancers. So they're not bad by any means, but you can kind of gently suggest to people at the fringes, hey, this is where you are relative to, you can call back a little bit less. And we have an AI technology that's also that we introduced about a year ago. You can say, you know, use it, embrace it. Say, if it says, don't call this back, and you're kind of on the fence and you really are not that, don't call it back. And so you can use the technology, you can use the peer review. At the same time, you can tell somebody that, and you can just, this isn't dictatorial. This is just kind of encouraging, right? Just kind of soft influence. So, you know, you're, you're not calling back that much. Use the AI, you know, if it flags something, pause, look at it, internalize it. Ultimately, we're not trying to threaten or even challenge somebody's internal intuition, but just kind of mold them with data. It's very like, a, if you've seen the movie Moneyball or read any of the Michael Lewis books on that, it's very much, you just, you, you arm them with data. You just use data, right? And yeah. you say, hey, this is where it is. Use it how you, how you can use it to improve. It's so much like sports almost where, you know, you could have an amazing three-point shooter and then you just have someone saying, you know, every time you take a shot, two steps to the left, you just, you make it a little bit more. It's not you saying know, you're a bad three-point shooter, but you know, the, we, the analysts are getting with them and giving them some, some suggestions that then help them harness their skills and take them from, you know, a 39% free throw shooter to a 41% free throw shooter. But all, by the way, being a 39% three-point shooter in the NBA, is like, you know, a $20 million a year starting player. I agree entirely. So I've kind of gone down the Daryl Morey analytics of drafting <laughs> and how exactly how it's fascinating how basketball works. And if I could ever kind of pivot entirely into a second career, I would go into the analytics of the NBA. I can't get enough of that, of how, how they 
will constantly evaluate percentages of shots and percentages on defensive schemes and offensive schemes. And it's just a game of percentages at many yeah. levels. And I don't know that it's that intricate, but I do like the metaphor because I'm a big NBA fan. So I'd love to be thought of as anywhere near like the LeBron James of anything. <laughs> but um, no, I, I do think there are similarities in that regard of modifying style based on data and a lot of probability assessments. If you take recommendations too personally or too intensely, you can also make a wrong decision. And so you have to take data with a measured approach and a measured guided approach towards change management to get the best results. So I think it's actually a very uh, apropos metaphor in that regard. It's so different than so many other parts of radiology. When we talk to educators in the field of musculoskeletal imaging, for example, it's a lot more gray and the questions are one of you know, how torn is this ligament? And you know, do we think this person's going to need surgery and what's happening in the surrounding structures? And it, it becomes a lot more about how you communicate those findings and what you're seeing and what level of detail you can get into on the anatomy. No algorithm is saying yes or no, that, sure. that part isn't usually the challenge of, of musculoskeletal imaging. So it's, it's just so different. Yeah, this, it's part of the simple beauty of mammography. I don't think the field is simple, but the decision-making, the logic can be simplified. It's cancer, no cancer. It's yeah. it's almost binary in that regard versus, you know, yeah, rotator cuff tear is graded, partial, full thickness, you know, and, and because it's binary in that regard, the data analysis is a little more pure in some, in some regards. So it's, it's easier to get large pools of data that's very meaningful in mammography compared to some of the other kind of more graded decision-making, but I think it's going to come in rotator cuff tears. I think it's going to come in, it's already come in head bleeds. It's mm -hmm. deciding C-section rates nationwide. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's out there and it's going to help us start shaping subjective and gray area decision-making. Luckily it's in breast imaging kind of earlier. So I'm, I'm excited about that. What's the state of play for AI in breast imaging specifically? Yeah, and maybe to, yeah. to make the, the question a little more specific, what are you currently using at Solus? What We've technologies are you actually putting in practice? Yeah, so tomosynthesis, which is 3D imaging, is a huge data set. It's something we kind of take for granted as breast imagers. We read it all the time, but it is a large volume of images, and it is an impractical volume of images that a, a traditional breast imager looks at in a single day. We, we look at in a week, we used to look at in 2D images in a year. So it is a massive data set. There is significant opportunity to help us comb through that data. So the current models that we use across our enterprise is it's on tomosynthesis. It's focused on that 3D imaging and it kind of combs through that and it references a set of over 10,000 cancers. And so if you can imagine on each case that we read with the AI, it's as if you have an expert it's a very, it's a savant expert that can tell you based on that 10,000 patients of cancer, what features of your mammogram have in common with that, which is thorny, it's complicated, it's difficult to understand, but once you understand it, it's a tremendous advent, both when it says there's nothing or it says it's low probability and when it says it's high. So it's, it's nice to have another, not reader, but another massive resource 
that each case is referenced to this huge database. That's what we should be doing. We should be using mm -hmm. our past information to inform how we read. And we're using it in that capacity. But now we're learning there's so much more information you can get in the mammogram. And so there's this new kind of push to really understand image-based risk where a mammogram can decide what's your future risk of getting breast cancer. And so we're really delving into that at Solus and just we're learning, hey, what information can we get from the mammogram? And we're, we're not limiting ourselves to kind of habit and what we've previously reported on a mammogram. What percent of your role is evaluating these new technologies and, and figuring out how and when to, to bring them in? That is one of the big pillars of my role. So quality is obviously a heavy pillar that is, that's always there. Um, clinical research, we're, we're very active in these managing physician relationships. This is, and then evaluating new technologies. Absolutely. And the, the interesting reality is I have to factor the pragmatism of new technologies, the practical impact of new technologies. Previously, when I was uh, focused on reading mammograms in my clinic and my practice, I would look at a technology and say, oh, that's awesome. We need that. We need that. Now I think, wait a minute, wait a minute. How is that going to interact with our different PAC systems? How is that going to cost? How is that going to work at scale? Are my RADs going to like it? And I have to think about these things that I previously did not have to. So I have a whole <laughs> new appreciation and a fear of technology that uh, that's fun. One thing we haven't talked at all about is the role of breast MR. Do your radiologists typically read read the breast MRs as well, even if they're not happening at a solace practice? Yeah, the, the, and, absolutely. You know, how, what's the state of adoption there? I think people keep expecting it to to grow faster maybe than it has. Breast MR is a very valuable service line. In our, most of our partnerships, it's it's done kind of more by our partner. And we we encourage breast MR or contrast enhanced MR or contrast enhanced mammo, excuse me, contrast enhanced mammography, where they give, inject contrast and take a mammogram. It gives you vascular imaging. So what we're learning is there's this morphological imaging. That is what a mammogram and ultrasound, that's kind of what we focus on if there's shapes. If I see a, something that takes up space with MR and with contrast mammo, you're injecting, obviously, and you're seeing where does it flow? So you're looking for abnormal blood flow. So there is a deep role for that. What does that look like 10 years from now? I don't know. There's a big emphasis on abbreviated MRs where you, you have a mm -hmm. shortened protocol because of the, the case space and everything. You can, you can take select images at decreased time intervals and still not compromise accuracy. So they're talking about decreasing the amount of scan time for an MR. So potentially you can have more patients that get MR in that case. There's also contrast enhanced mammography, which offers, which can be done in a clinic. It hasn't really taken off in the same capacity yet. It's still pretty early, but both offer tremendous insight onto the blood flow patterns of the breast. So you get shape-based imaging with blood flow imaging layered on it. And you, it offers you more layered information to kind of catch, and our goal is to catch cancers early. So there's, there's tremendous opportunity. We're still learning that as an organization. Where is it going to be five years from now? And will, will it become Solus Mammo and MR as, as the name of and, the- And contrast enhanced Mammo and, <laughs> and everything. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. We're still learning. Um, 
and, and the field as a whole is still deciding. There's there's a lecture at RSNA that uh, there's, I forget, I forget which institution where they think everything's gonna go MR and it's gonna replace everything, which I, I, I interesting, it's an interesting take. There's individuals that say, oh yeah, I, I, there, there's there's radiologists that don't subscribe as heavily to it. So I, I don't know where, where we're gonna end up on that end of the spectrum. I don't know what it's gonna look like when we wanna offer it broader to more patients because that can't access it for various reasons. So uh, th thanks for, for talking through that You're near, near in the end of the podcast. Love to just kind of hear your take on life. And, you know, one thing I love about you uh, as I've gotten to know you is just how much of a voracious learner you are. And obviously you, you have this insatiable appetite to learn. So you, you, you decided to take on a new challenge, take on the MBA, take on the new job. You like to write, you like to speak, you like to teach. Where, where does this come from? What motivates that? You make me sound so much more positive than I, I think of myself. Um, <laughs> I've always been, I've had this just kind of passion to learn. And I, I have this restlessness that gets medicated when I figure something out, right? And I have this kind of competitive curiosity where I just want to learn it. I want to learn it. Uh, yesterday, I dropped my keys in a hole behind a, in our kitchen shelf. I, I almost turned into an IR doctor. I got a coat hanger and I was trying to yoke it. I have my daughters involved. We had flashlights. I was loving it. I love I love trying to figure things out and it's a blessing and a curse because in some ways my wife says I can never just sit still and be happy because I'm always trying to figure something else out. But I've, <laughs> I've learned not to fight it. I've learned not to fight it. And luckily I've, I've been surrounded by really positive people that have woken it up and keep kind of rechanneling it towards different avenues. So I, I pinch myself at how lucky I am to be in this position where I get to tickle my brain by the minute and also have a meaningful impact and meet wonderful people like yourself along the way and, and really have engaging conversations. Like the little kid in me feels happy now because he gets to, he gets to kind of ask these questions and think. Um, so I, I think I've had good experiences that let me validate my crazy brain of getting to ask questions and figuring out how the world works. I'm still a kid trying to figure out the world, man. That's all I am. And uh, I've had fun that, along the that's way. All that's all we all are. And, and one of the things that we talked about, you know, some of our prior conversations was this concept of human capital and radiologists being one of the purest expressions of just, you know, at the end of the day, it's human capital. How do you think about that? How does that, how does that generate into advice for radiologists or, you know, practice leaders today? That's a fantastic question. We are ultimately very much ambassadors of only human capital. That can be a very good thing or a bad thing. So in terms of the good things, it makes us very lean. You don't have to invest a lot of money to start your own radiology group. You don't need to buy any equipment. You don't need to buy any MRs. You don't need to buy any CTs. You don't need to buy any computers. Even a lot of, a lot of centers will provide all that. You could start your own group tomorrow, right? Also, there's a lot of room to be service-oriented, to be service-oriented first and foremost to patients, but to our referring physicians, to our team members. There's a lot of room. I learned that pretty early. There's a big appetite for that. If you are nice to people, you are motivated, you take care of patients, and you, you do the right thing, and you're energized about it, the world is your oyster. At the same time, it's also a little scary, right? When I came out of training, I thought I was so naive. I thought radiologists owned the equipment. I thought we had all this stickiness and anchoring, and we don't. And like we talked about kind of before, what I learned when I came out of training was, oh my gosh, I'm a name on a, on a credentialing sheet somewhere. I'm a line in an Excel sheet or a row in an Excel sheet. 
yeah, there's, I like to think I offer value, but I could be deleted tomorrow. It's scary in that capacity, but it can be very motivating of, hey, I need to wake up and do a very good job today. I need to be really nice to people. I need to make the best decisions I can, uh, both clinically and from a service standpoint, and I will do good work. So I, I think of it, I tried the eternal optimist in me frames it as a former, but it's multifaceted, I guess. It's the nicest way of putting it. Well, it's a great place to leave it. Dr. Pargi, really enjoyed the conversation and thank you so much for joining us. I thank you for having me and I thank you for putting this podcast together and your emphasis on education. It resonates very deeply with me. Keep doing it, keep growing it and uh, keep stimulating these kinds of decisions, these discussions and just keep being a thought leader. It, we need it as a field. So I appreciate you doing that. Wonderful. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Radiology Report podcast. Be sure to visit us at the radiologyreportpodcast.com or subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts to join us for our next episode. We are always looking for great guests. If you have someone you'd like to hear on the show, please get in touch with us online.